electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange on this Friday. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Concern is in and complacency is out. Stocks are getting more panicky and bond yields are at record lows today. As coronavirus spreads, the WHO saying the window to stem the virus is narrowing. Is the market reaction justified? We'll ask. Plus, the great unwind. The rate of people dropping paid TV jumped 70 percent last year. As it accelerates, who wins and loses? We've got some names. Plus, Nevada is scrambling to make sure that it avoids an Iowa embarrassment tomorrow. But experts are worried about a repeat. We'll tell you why. Before all that, we begin with today's markets. And Seema Modi is at the NYSE with more for us. Seema? And Kelly, I think you were about to say NVIDIA, but you went with Nevada. Let's look at the markets right now. We're down 210 points just off the lows of the session. Uh, stocks and yields, though, have been falling in tandem. That's really been a story throughout this week. Defensive rate-sensitive sectors outperforming utilities, real estate, and consumer staples, the only three sectors that are higher on the day. And check out the run-up in home builders and REITs in the past month. Some of these names up 8 to 10 percent, really outperforming the broader market. And speaking of safe havens, take a look at gold this relentless uh, move to the upside near a seven-year high and on track for its best week since August. So certainly different parts of the market reacting to this lower rate environment. Kelly? NVIDIA, Nevada, tomato, yeah. tomato. <laughs> Seema, thanks very much. We will have more on gold and so many of these market moves today. We begin with yields continuing to plunge amid coronavirus fears. Look at the 30-year yield. It hit a record low today of 1.88%. Rick Santelli is out at the CME and he's got more on this action for us. Rick? Yeah, Kelly, you know, it's not only equities flirting with history, interest rates are flirting with history. And for the same reason, prices accelerating, pushing yields down. Uh, pushing yields down, though, may not be good news because, of course, it's associated with flight to safety. If you look at an intraday of 10s, we were down as low as 143. As we sit now at 147, we're down about 6 on the day. We're down 13 on the week. Just think, boom deals are only down 4 on the week. Look at uh, May 1st chart because, obviously, right there at the beginning of September, 145 plus was the major cycle low close. Looks like we have a chance to take that out, although we've just popped above it. The close is important. Now let's look at 30s. Their intraday low, as you pointed out, was 188. Open the chart up to May. We're well below their all-time low at 195. That was, of course, from the end of August. Finally, 10s minus 2s. Lost five basis points to flattening this week. It now stands at 12. And finally, uh, Boons. I talked about them. Only down four on the week. Look at 10s minus Boons. It is the closest those two yields have been at 190 since October of 2017. Kelly, back to you. Rick, a lot of great info in there. We appreciate it. Rick Santelli in Chicago today. Uh, before we move on, we've got a market flash coming in on eBay. Let's get to Deirdre Bosa for that. Deirdre? Hey, Kelly. eBay shares, they're popping uh, two and one-third of a percent in trade today. And this is after headlines coming from Dow Jones saying that 
It could be moving towards a sale of its classified unit, which could be roughly worth $10 billion. Says that NASPERS, Axel Springer and private equity firms, including TPG and Blackstone, have expressed interest. Again, they are citing sources. And it's also saying that initial indications of interest for the classifieds unit is due in March. This, of course, comes after eBay sold off its StubHub unit and it's undergoing this strategic review spurred on by activist investors, Elliott Management, taking a stake in the company. So shares continue to move higher up nearly 3% right now. Back to you. Deirdre, this also comes after the New York Stock Exchange parent company expressed some interest in, in all of eBay, right? That's right. And it really shows you that eBay is undergoing this transformation over the last year, particularly since Elliott took that stake. And it's also putting a lot of its emphasis on payment. So this is part of eBay trying to figure out what direction it's going and perhaps looking at a sale of some of its businesses, all of its business. Sure. And the shares up, like you said, a little less than 3%. Deirdre, thanks. Deirdre Bosa. Turning back to the broader markets now, for years, falling yields have supported higher stock prices. In fact, St. Louis Fed President James Bullard on Squawk Box this morning said that's why he's not too concerned about the stock market's relatively high level right now. We always watch this and we watch uh, financial stability issues and bubble type issues uh, very carefully. I think that conventional wisdom is that valuations look high but not at this level of interest rates. And so to the extent you think this level of interest rates is probably the future, which I've been arguing, I think we're okay for now. Looks more and more entrenched, that's for sure. Although today, stocks and yields are both declining. Joining me to talk more about this are Paul Christopher. He's the head of global market strategy at Wells Fargo Investment Institute. And Rich Weiss is chief investment officer of multi-asset strategies at American Century Investments. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Rich, I'll just start with you. Um, Is Mr. Bullard right that that low yields are here to stay, um, is the flip side of the coin of that permanently higher stock prices? Well, I don't know about permanently higher. Um, you know, we've been neutral on the market for some time. Clearly, low interest rates are helpful for P.E. multiples. And in fact, that was the whole story in 2019. Lower interest rates, uh, surprise change in the Fed's uh, policy, and you get the multiple expansion. But this year, even with the low interest rates, you're going to need to see earnings come through to move stock prices higher. Um, You know, depending on uh, various other issues, both uh, COVID-19 and economic issues, uh, if the Fed lowers rates, maybe you'll get a little more P.E. expansion. But this year is really about earnings. And so far, as we've seen from fourth quarter 2019, they're just not coming in. So we're a little concerned about uh, permanently higher stock prices from here. Okay, Paul, let's talk about the action today a little bit. Uh, yes, you have bond yields, including that 30-year at record lows. It's notable, first of all. Stock prices, though, are slipping. Gold is moving higher. <laughs> I got a lot of a lot of emails and, and comments uh, from people who are very excited about the upward move in gold, the bulls who have been waiting for this for some time. But you also have copper up, which usually, if this was a, a sign of kind of global doomsday because of spreading coronavirus, you name it, you wouldn't expect, you know, the metal with a Ph.D. on the economy to be moving higher today. So, you know, how would you describe the, the action that we're seeing here? I'd, st- I'd still call it cautious. We have been cautious on equity markets. We also believe that this year will be a year when earnings are going to matter a lot. We came into the year with the consensus looking for 10 percent growth in earnings. We're only looking for 7 percent growth. And with lower interest rates and some modest uh, earnings growth this year, we still think this market can move higher from from where it had been, let's say, before this week and before the selling. What about, Rich, I'll turn to you, the spreading coronavirus. You know, we'll get an update in a moment on, on the numbers exactly. But, 
you know, as it stands, the, anecdotally, people are more and more concerned that it's coming to their doorstep. Oh, no question. And, you know, putting aside the horrible human toll uh, for the moment, there's a real economic impact. Originally, uh, we all saw uh, coronavirus uh, similar to SARS or MER, and uh, clearly it's much more infectious than that. So the market's trying to get a grip on that because there were severe economic impacts. Uh, Chinese economic growth in the first, first quarter widely expected to be reduced by 25 percent or more. Mm. I think somewhere around six handle down to maybe four and a half or lower. Uh, the market is adjusting uh, you know, to these issues. And that means slower global economic growth, of course, maybe by a half a percent in the first quarter. And a as the evidence unfolds, there's more to come there to the downside, potentially. So, Rich, what would you be a holder of? Uh, do you stick with bonds? I mean, you sound pretty defensive. Do you stick with bonds, which, you know, themselves have, you could call it valuation problems? Do you look for, you know, high dividend yielding stocks? Where, where would you be? Uh, well, we're a little barbelled stocks and cash. Um, you know, bonds have had a nice run. In fact, I think uh, long bonds are now winning the race so far in 2019. Mm -hmm. uh, but but stocks, there's certainly there's in this flight to safety, the, the safe havens are winning, which typically means U.S. large cap growth equities. And that's where we're overweighted right now relative to other equities. But again, to be clear, uh, we're not we're not throwing money at the stock market right now. We're remaining neutral uh, to our long-term position. Yeah, no, I, I heard cash. That's certainly not a, you know, a, a strongly bullish uh, comment to make. Real quickly, Paul, before we go, I'll give you one more conundrum uh, on, on my mind today. It's the fact that the, both the dollar's been up lately to multi-year highs and gold is at seven-year highs. You know, you would think, again, strong dollar, maybe weaker gold. We're not seeing that. Uh, break it down. Why? This is just part of the risk haven trade. Uh, people buy gold. People buy the dollar uh, when they're really worried about things. Normally, yes, you would expect dollar and gold uh, to move inversely. But, but we, th we think that this is a natural reaction to the uncertainty of coronavirus. And we also are neutral on the stock market, but do have certain sectors that we favor more than others. And, again, would favor those growth sectors that would give you some quality characteristics. We think cash flow, cash to debt ratios being low, uh, and good earnings prospects. You're going to find those more, we think, in tech, in information technology, and consumer discretionary. Yeah, we know in the fourth quarter it was just the big five companies where we saw all the earnings growth, basically. All right, guys, thanks. We appreciate it. Thank you. Paul Christopher thanks. and Richard Weiss. Now let's get the latest on the spreading coronavirus. The number of confirmed cases now topped 77,000 worldwide. The number of deaths at more than 2,200. Earlier today, China revised the number of cases it reported on Wednesday in the Hubei province to nearly double what it had said. And the WHO, the World Health Organization, says the window of opportunity to stem the virus in terms of its global spread, that window is narrowing. As the outbreak continues, restaurant owners in China are struggling to stay afloat, with many of them worried this will put them out of business. Yunus Yun has the story from one of them in Beijing. Kelly, small and medium-sized companies have been slammed by the coronavirus scare. One survey here found that 85% of SMEs polled feared they could run out of cash in the next three months. And as I found out, one of the worst hit sectors is the restaurant business. Usually, you can't get a seat at this popular cafe in Beijing. Not these days. Basically, we're not having customers. Alex Molino's Mosto Group runs 14 restaurants like this one in China, and he had hoped to open even more here this year. Now, because of the coronavirus outbreak, the Colombian restaurateur is wondering if his business can survive. Most of our locations are closed. 
the time keeps passing and it's like we start like thinking what to do with the salaries of the staff, rents, fees, costs that we have. It's getting complicated day by day. Molina's restaurant is in a part of Beijing called Sanlitun, which is known for its nightlife and its popular restaurants. Usually this place would be teeming with people, but as you could see, hardly anyone is here. To cope, Molina is limiting his menus, reducing his opening hours, negotiating rent breaks, and considering pay cuts for some of his 200 employees. The government is trying to help small companies like Mosto by allowing them to delay pension payments for workers and pressing banks to offer cheap loans. Molina says the loans would help, but the biggest concern is how long the outbreak will last. We're pretty worried that we need to declare the company on bankruptcy. We're trying to avoid that, but it's like for sure it's in the back of our heads. And bankruptcies would hurt employment and income for millions of people here and become a major headache for China's policymakers. Kelly? That's Eunice Yun in Beijing. For more on the coronavirus and the very latest numbers, tune in tonight to CNBC's special report. Outbreak coronavirus is live tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern time. And here's what else is straight ahead today on The Exchange. Coming up, the White House is projecting 3.1 percent growth this year. But with the coronavirus already cutting into corporate earnings, is that a big overestimation? Plus, is Bloomberg's social media spending evading transparency rules? This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange and take a look at shares of Viacom CBS, which are down again today, and they're off more than 30 percent already this year. The shares plunged yesterday as investors weren't impressed with the streaming strategy the company outlined. They're trying to catch up as the pace of cord cutting has risen sharply. It was up 70 percent last year. And for more, I'm joined by Craig Moffat. He's founding partner at Moffat Nathanson. And Craig, it's great to see you. Welcome. Good to see you again. You always have the big numbers. You've managed to kind of go through each company and, and add it all up for us. And so I'm going to rattle off a few of them. More than 6 million households cut the cord in 2019. Uh, you know, the quarter, uh, the, the, the pace of decline at the end of the year was 7%, the fastest ever. And here's kind of the big picture. Since 2009, we've gone from 88% of the public having pay TV to now just about 65%, right? So where, where are we going from here? And where, where should Viacom CBS's role be? Well, look, it, it, the, there's no reason to expect that it's going to get any better this year. Um, it, the, what's really happening now is if, if the last few years have been about customers getting comfortable with the idea of cord cutting, what's really happening now is the cable distributors themselves are getting comfortable with cord cutting. And so rather than trying to fight it, they're letting it happen. And once the distributors are on board and saying it's okay if our customers want to leave the video product, it's really hard to see how it doesn't keep accelerating for a while. And it's fascinating because you said, and this is important for all of us you know, who are customers of, of cable, you said 
they're kind of saying, you know what, we're, we're going to stop undercutting on price. And the people who are sticking around, they can just pay us, you know, a, a price that gives us a, a good profit that we're looking for. We're not going to try to compete on price. And they're, so I guess the, the message to consumers is don't call looking for the, you know, a great deal right now thinking you can cite the industry pressure. That's exactly right. And, you know, I, but let me step back for a second. I think what's really important here is, is not so much that customers are leaving the traditional pay TV providers and going to virtual providers, but instead what you're really seeing is you're seeing a separation between live TV, and live TV is dominated by sports and news and, and Kelly, your own programming, um, and then entertainment programming, which doesn't need to be live. Mm-hmm. And so... Those two universes are completely separating, and more and more of the customers who are leaving the ecosystem are leaving the ecosystem because they don't care about sports and news that much. And so they're going to, whether it's Disney Plus and Netflix and and Hulu or or only the video-on-demand products. And so you're seeing those two universes become more and more separate. And you mentioned there's two strategies there. So you can be Disney and say, we're going to be the entertainment, you know, distribution product. Or you can be Fox and say, you know, we're going to have the best, you know, try to have the best news uh, that's live, sports that's live, and just make sure people are going to pay us uh, for the privilege of carrying that content. So we promised we'd name names. And other than the two I mentioned, who is a buy uh, in your universe? You know, who do you think is really positioned well for the future? Well, let me, let me start with the infrastructure side of the business. The cable guys, frankly, um, are fine with this evolution. They, they are, after all, digital infrastructure companies. They're not media companies. So whether it is Charter or, uh, or, or Altis USA or the cable companies, not a problem for them. They're, they're fine. Comcast straddles that world but also owns media assets, and there's just no way to spin this as good for the media side of Comcast business. Um, but Comcast overall is still predominantly infrastructure. They're, they're pretty well positioned as well. The ones that really suffer are the, are the satellite operators um, because they don't have a broadband product to fall back on, so losing video subscribers is the whole ballgame. Sure. DirecTV at AT&T is a mess, and AT&T also has exposure to Turner and the programming side, which is also looking like a mess. So, so AT&T looks like they are a loser here. Um, and then among the media companies, you mentioned Disney having a strong play in the entertainment side. Disney also has a strong play in the sports side in ESPN, and I think they're, they're a really interesting company to look at because they're actually pursuing both strategies at the same time. And you see them pursuing completely different strategies for their sports assets and their non-sports assets. Which is interesting. And I shouldn't even ask this, Craig. We're we're way out of time. But I I just have to know, one or two words if you can. Are are Dish and DirecTV going to merge, or what's going to happen there? Uh, You know, I don't think that regulatory would be the reason they don't merge. I think the reason they don't merge is it's really tough to finance a deal like that anymore. Nobody's going to put debt on it because it doesn't have a long-term future. And if you have to do it all with equity, you just can't put a valuation on it that makes it interesting to anybody. So um, my guess is that it, it... it's probably not going to happen. Wow. Craig, thank you. Uh, we appreciate it. We'd love to check back in as this uh, continues. My pleasure, Craig. Craig Moffat of Moffat Nathanson. Coming up, could secondhand clothing save the gap? The struggling retailer is betting on it. We debate whether that's a good fit. Plus, funny, creepy, or time to worry what this new deepfake of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk says about technology's reach these days. A reminder, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two. 
At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Exchange. Let's take a look at these markets. The Dow is down as much as 327 points at the low today. We're down about 241 right now. Uh, still a 1% decline for the S&P. And look at that, a 1.6% drop for the NASDAQ today. Here are some of the stock movers. Shares of Dropbox are up 22% after beating on the top and bottom line and raising its full-year profit margin outlook. That plus a $600 million share buyback, giving the stock a major boost today. Shares of Virgin Galactic, back down to earth. They topped $40 yesterday briefly. Morgan Stanley warned investors the stock might dip ahead of its earnings next week. And there's Virgin Galactic down, down 6.5%, right now below 35 Still up 195% this year. And shares of Chewy are up about 3% today on an upgrade to outperform from sector perform at RBC. They cite a highly favorable risk-reward outlook, including private label, pharmacy, and international demand. Chewy up 2.5% nearly to just under 30 bucks a share. Over to Courtney Reagan now for a CNBC News update. Hi, Courtney. Hi there, Kelly. Here's what's happening at this hour. Former Agricultural Secretary and Iowa Governor Tom Vilsack getting an oversight role at Purdue Pharma. He's been named monitor of the maker of OxyContin as part of the company's Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Vilsack will have unrestricted access to Purdue Pharma's records and employees and will report to both the bankruptcy court and Purdue's board of directors. A flash flood hitting hundreds of students and teachers who were hiking along a river on Indonesia's main island of Java. Officials say at least six students are dead. Five others are reported missing. And flu activity remains high in the U.S., but it did drop slightly during the week. This according to the CDC. At least 29 million people have come down with the flu this season, and at least 16,000 have died, including 105 children. Well, a bear going for a walk through backyards west of Los Angeles in the town of Monrovia. Look at this video. This comes a day after a bear sighting at a local elementary school. Bears likely a little hungry, looking for food. So be careful, everybody in California and here in New Jersey. Kelly, we got bears here too. I'm well aware. Yeah. Uh, those kids better watch out. They'd be quite a scary. Courtney, thank you very much. Thanks, and we'll Kel. see you in a sec uh, for Rapid Fire. That's coming up right after this break. Here's what else. Ahead, Gap goes into the resale business. Fitbit stock is out of shape. In Nevada, it's a last-minute scramble to make voting tech work. And a deep fake video that proves just how far tech has come. It's all ahead on Rapid Fire. Welcome back. 
back. Let's catch you up on a couple stories that should be on your radar as we close out the week here. It's time for Rapid Fire. Here to break down the headlines today are New York Times reporter and CNBC contributor Ed Lee, Courtney Reagan. Welcome back. And Eric Chemi. It's great to have you all around. Uh, first up, let's talk about The Gap, which is making kind of a splashy move that I don't fully understand. So we need Courtney to help explain it. Uh, they are tapping ThreadUp to help jumpstart their slumping sales, announcing a new partnership with the apparel resale platform. This comes on the same day another secondhand clothing platform, The Real Real, which went public last year. Uh, shares of, of The Real Real are higher today on an upgrade to outperform at Raymond James. So, Courtney, the durability of the secondhand, whatever we call it, market is, is proving itself clearly. But what is Gap really trying to do here? Okay, so I think you're right. It's proving itself because there is a lot of growth. But when you start on a relatively small base, it's easy to see big growth, right? So what the Gap is doing is they're partnering with ThreadUp. And ThreadUp is a company where they'll send you a bag. You can send the clothes that you don't want anymore. Literally, it sends it to them. They value it and then resell it on their site. If those items sell, you get some money back. What Gap is saying is if the real, real, or excuse me, if ThreadUp values that dress, Kelly, that you sent in, at $20, someone paid $20 for it, you can take that $20 that ThreadUp is going to give you, or the gap is going to give you $23, so a 15% increase in the value. What does to the spend gap have to their do with anything? Or are they competing with them or they're partnering with so them? So basically, Gap is trying to find a customer that maybe is not currently shopping at Gap stores. They are trying to reward people for being environmentally conscious. Um, so that's a big part of it, too. And I think they're going to try to figure out what other learnings and data they can get from this market but are they and kicking, understand. are they kicking off ThreadUp from the process? Are they competing with them? Say, hey, well, yeah, I don't bid them, understand. or they're working with them to kick that, in some and, extra money? And admittedly, this is very confusing. So Gap is not, or none of the Gap brands are touching your used clothing. They're just saying, here... You can use our stores in April as a pickup location. We've got the bags to make it easier so you don't get them in the mail. So here's another place at Gap stores you can pick up a thread-up bag. It's a drop-off it drop location, it's, basically. They're making use of all the Gap stores. But that's the weird off. thing. It's, it's a right. pick, up, pick up the pick bag, up bag up. take, take it home, do the work, send it back in, let thread-up value your items. And we'll give thread you up, extra money. Exactly. We'll give you extra because money. Because you came to pick up the bag here. No, just because we're, we're trying to give you a reason to come shop with us. But can we show each of our faces right now, which are literally like... It's too complicated. It's a bad idea. I don't understand. Correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like a pretty standard wholesale agreement, right, between Gap and ThreadUp. In other words, it's Gap is paying whatever difference there is going to be in terms of whatever they're giving to the customer relative to what ThreadUp is giving them. So it's, it's, it's cross-promotional. It's marketing. Yes. The idea is that the ThreadUp customer who normally would not walk into a Gap might walk into a Gap now. Right. Is, is because now they get $23 in Gap credit as opposed to $20. Which reminds me a little bit of the Kohl's cash. Amazon partnership or right. uh, yes. Amazon and Whole Foods. different. They, they, they right. actually own I think it, but trying to leverage. I think it's smart on Gap's part in that this is not inventory they're going to be holding or Absolutely. managing or selling. That's going to be the big, I think with totally. ThreadUp or the Real Real, I think the challenges for these businesses, despite that it's on the rise, it's a growing market, is inventory management, and right? We, and because we, you're not, where's your stuff coming from? Right. It's, you're, you're up to people randomly just coming in and, hey, I want to I sell this on consignment. And, Whereas, you know, creating or sourcing or coming up with these uh, items on your own, which is always a challenge with retail, is absolutely. the inventory. And, and we, I know we have to move on. Gap shares, by the way, I'm just curious at the reaction here. Down, down 2.5% today. I mean, yes, it's a tough market, but... 
they probably hope for a little bit more of a boost. I think this is going to be a wait and see. We're going to have to wait yeah, and see. Are sure. you going to take the $20 in cash or $23 right. in store credit take for cash? <laughs> you <laughs> always, cash. always take the cash. Uh, speaking about the secondhand market, don't miss Raymond James analyst Aaron Kessler, who's the guy who had the bullish call on the real real. He's going to be on Power Lunch next hour. We will definitely talk more about that. Uh, next up, we're going to talk Fitbit. That's why you see this out of shape thing. We're, no, no, we're calling it out audible here and we're changing topics because CNBC.com is reporting that SpaceX is looking to raise capital that could launch their valuation sky high. Let's bring on Sheets. CNBC.com space reporter Michael Sheets has the exclusive details. Welcome, sir. Um, what really caught our eye about this story is how much will SpaceX be worth now? $36 billion. Wow. Wow. So that, and this is a big piece of Tesla. Uh, it, it's actually not a big piece of Tesla. Those are separate entities. Um, I believe there are some shares that are intermixed, but uh, he, Elon mostly keeps these two companies separate. Do you think that, so? This is they they're they're going out trying to tap the markets, or they've already raised this capital. Well, so they they're going out and raising this 250 million right now. It's not expected to close until the second week of March, according to the sources I spoke to. Uh, but this is just kind of a continuation. They raised 1.33 billion dollars last year across three rounds. So they do this with semi regularity because of the demand that they can command on the private markets. Why do markets. they even need 250 million dollars if Elon Musk? I mean, he made so much on Tesla stock. <laughs> he could just sell billion. some more Tesla stock. Like, <laughs> like the percentage, it's not like, oh, we're raising $10 billion to be worth 36 We're raising a quarter billion. That seems so True. small, right? It is small, and, and typically the rounds are in the hundreds of millions of dollars range. So that's definitely a fair point. The reason they're raising now is because they have three major projects that are all in uh, critical development this year. They have their Crew Dragon capsule, which is supposed to fly NASA astronauts in a few months. They have their Starlink Internet satellites, which are, they've launched about 300 of them so far, and that's a 12,000 satellite program. And then they have their Starship, which is this massive Mars rocket ship they're developing in Texas. So they have a lot of capital-intensive projects right now. It's true. You do wonder why they don't just tap Musk but and say it. He doesn't want to put his own money in, and then why right. as an investor do well, I want to put the money well, in? Well, but, I mean, do you really want the company funding itself? by? And, and how liquid is he really? Just, Tesla's true, gone up so much get rid this of Tesla year. Just, I, I wish I this know. is not like a WeWork type situation where there's just a lot of money rolling in. We don't know where, how it's being used. Is it, is it you know... I mean, used properly? Is that where it's going? As far as we know, it's been used pretty well so far because they've established a very successful launch business at this point Mm -hmm. with about $2 billion in revenue a year. So they have a pretty stable business, real money coming in, and then they've been able to do these really like next level projects on top of that. Sheets, we appreciate it. Sheets on space. Now, what do you you say? Space sheet? What is the name of it? Sheets in space. So much more fun we could have. Uh, we appreciate it, sir. Michael Sheets, who's more on CNBC.com. Uh, how about this? Consumers can now track when their friends buy pizza on Venmo, as we know, and share their favorite music playlist on Spotify. But soon you might be able to share your investment holdings on Robinhood, which is launching a new feature today called Profiles. It's set to roll out next week. It will allow users to track how their investments are allocated, follow curated lists of stocks, and include custom usernames and profile photos. Genius to apply it to stocks, this guys? Is the the worst. Worst. This is the worst. Because think about but what the markets. Like no, 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 but think about the <laughs> markets are all about fear and greed and what is everyone else doing and right. I need to make a trade. But just before everyone else makes it, because if I'm too early, then I don't make any money. But this is just going to exacerbate Everything we hate about the markets and social media, right, <laughs> is that it, oh, it causes all these overreactions. That but people all go to one way, then they all go the other way. Or so it can be exploited. People? I mean, you can imagine pump and dump schemes, you know, sort of going on this, a system like this. You can this. be an influencer. I'm a social influencer. Right, especially the way social media works Until someone days, gets hosed. Right? I mean, you, you only have the credibility that you've earned to some extent, right? The, 
it will be interesting to see, does it create networks more like Venmo, where it's really just between you and your friends, so to speak? Or does it create networks more like Spotify, where people want the people with the best place? Obviously, in the market, it has to be people who are be, actually worth right. following, unless it creates this trend-like behavior. The worst thing about Spotify is a playlist. You don't like it, you can move on to the or next place. With money. this, if, you, if you're <laughs> yeah. spending money on stuff, that doesn't work out. It just reminds out. you of, like, Bitcoin Thanksgiving. Remember? Yeah. Right around. <laughs> I remember very Everybody well. at the Thanksgiving tables, they yes. never, you know, they don't really know how the equity markets work, but they were, like, pretty interested in buying very Bitcoin. Bitcoin. But maybe and we all were like, oh, no. Eric's point makes me wonder, will hedge funds actually love this because they can kind of lean against, you know, exploit that somehow to say, all right, we know once it reaches a certain... The you ultimate know, dumb money move is it's, everyone it's on a, Robin Hood following each other, right? I mean, it's do the a opposite. nifty idea. But, it's a nifty idea. But but I think in, in fairness, the retail investor has been, you know, they used to say, oh, that's always the dumb money, hedge funds. But like the last couple of years, I mean, the, the institutional, the, the, there's a lot of stuff out there. People say, no, retail is the new smart money. They're not in the worst stuff. They're not. The, maybe the start of this year is a little bit different. But then again, who's to know what ends up happening with Tesla or you know, this Virgin Galactic. Look I mean, at where I, Tesla is I, now, right? right? Exactly. I don't know. I think this is an nifty idea. I think there need to be controls in place if they're really going to turn it into, like, social networking for investors kind of scheme right. is what they're going for here. Just the way the dynamics play out, right. it's so easily exploited. Yeah. That's the danger. Talk about the spread of misinformation. Yes. Yikes. <laughs> With money behind it. Yikes. All right. Finally, today, the technology behind deepfake videos has come so far that it is out of this world now. Check out this one orbiting the Internet today that places Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos and Tesla CEO Elon Musk inside the pilot episode of the original Star Trek series. Is this a deception? Do you intend to destroy yourselves? Just to show you how primitive humans are, Tulosian. We had not believed this possible. So we've seen deep fakes before. We've talked about them before. And the, the point of this one, while it's kitschy, is to just kind of show guys how easy it is to create one and how again, good it how was. It, that was how good such a good deep well, we don't know how easy it is. We know how good it is. Remember, it's right. not like they did the entire two-hour movie right. and they were able to fake it. They were able to fake a little chunk of it mm-hmm. because those shots were just ahead and not a lot and of other things perfect. moving on. Yeah. And we don't know, did it take them a day to do it or it took them six right. months to mm-hmm. do that? It's I successful. Know. I mean, the spe- specific episode they did is the original pilot episode, one of my favorite episodes. There's no there's ah. no Kirk in this, right? So clearly this is a signal to the hardcore <laughs> Trekkies out there. Deep nerds, you know, and, and deep the, nerds. the deep nerds. And I think the fact that <laughs> the Bezos bit especially looks so good. But now if you're terrifying. out sick, yes. like, you could still be hosting your show every time because they just plop your face right. in That's for the rest of us. Yeah. 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 Depends on how much work goes into it, to your point. Is this, like, a months-long effort? There, there's a more real-world um, sort of parallel to this, though, in the last 24 hours. It's, you guys probably saw the Bloomberg debate video. Yes, debate, right. debate video where it's edited to show that there was a longer pause than there really was when he asks, what was he talking about? He was saying, starting who else has started, started, started a business? Stage of starting right. a business. And, and people, so now the question is, and I think we've actually heard from some of the social media companies, Twitter saying that this edited video would violate their deepfake policy. I think Facebook so far saying not so much. So this is not a deepfake. This is just an edited. It's, right. it's satire. Yeah. So it I see it as satire. Would a reasonable person view this and think it were real? I think that is the test. And I think I think Facebook actually comes out correct on this one. Twitter, I don't know where they're. they're it's interesting that they're, they're, they say this would violate their policies. It's still on Twitter, by the way. You can still watch it. Right. But those, those two companies have taken a very different approach. Yeah. Twitter's banned political ads. Facebook has not. Right. You know, uh, we'll leave it there for now. Um, still, it just feels like if Bloomberg, with all the money behind him, is now the one to watch in terms of, we talked a lot in 2016, you know, Trump and the trolls and the, everything that happened on these 
these platforms now, I think it in a way goes back to why Bloomberg is going to have a tough time. If he doesn't win, he can just deep fake himself as the president <laughs> getting the Oval Office. Like, I don't need to win. I just paid the money to make it look like I'm there. And maybe he'll have more fun that right. way. Thank you, guys. We appreciate Eric Chevy, Courtney Reagan, and Ed Lee today. The scramble to get the tech to elect uh, up and running is on in Nevada. Whether tomorrow's Democratic caucus will be a repeat of Iowa or if the bugs are worked out, we'll get into that next. As we head to break, take a look at the most searched tickers on CNBC.com. The 10-year yield topping the list, edging out Tesla, Virgin Galactic's up there, the Dow in general. People want to know what's going on. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The White House projecting GDP growth of 3.1 percent each quarter this year if President Trump's economic agenda is fully implemented. That growth target has been elusive, even as the economy has dodged multiple hits lately, including from the tariff and trade wars. Here to tell us if and how that growth target can still be achieved is Tomas Philipson. He's acting chair of the Council of Economic Advisors. And Mr. Chair, it's good to see you. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So 3.1 percent, uh, does that mean an end to you know, a lot of people would just say without the tariff and the trade issues, we, we would have gotten there last year. Um, how do we get to it this year? Yeah, so basically there's a lot of uh, positive forces starting in place once we get the corona uh, virus under control, which I which we're hoping will be a sort of a short term effect. There's a lot of uh, uh, things that hit us in 2019 that will basically provide an upside in in 2020. One of those things is the Boeing shutdown, which is actually a big deal for exports. The trade agreements that we struck in early January, USMCA and the phase one with China, are also great for export markets in, in terms of opening up. And uh, so we're pretty optimistic. And we think this, this uh, uh, continuation of sort of the Trump economy that we've seen is very, very different from what we saw uh, prior in the prior part of the expansion at the, the Great Recession. Sure. So let me ask you about the Federal Reserve, because last year, three rate cuts did a lot to shore up the economy. Uh, do you expect they're going to cut rates this year, should they? And would that support that 3.1% growth target? In general, CA sort of respect the independence of the, of the Fed and do not really comment on the desirability, the desirability of the policies. But one difference that we can talk about is sort of what the effects are. And if you look at the early part of the expansion, it was a very easy monetary policy of zero rates throughout until uh, 16 and 17 and 18. And we actually, usually what happens in an expansion is that you have very rapid growth following a recession, particularly a financial recession than, than, than the one we saw, as the one we saw after the great recession, after which growth kind of settles down. It's kind of the opposite that has happened in this expansion. It was very, very slow growth initially, even though we had very expansionary monetary policy. And even though we had sort of eight rate hikes, and now they've come down a couple of times or three times, uh, we still had a much accelerated growth in the Trump economy. So I think, you know, if you look at what happened in 2016, people predicted what a continuation of an Obama economy would look like. And so basically we had the answers to what people thought the continuation of Obama, uh, an Obama economy looked like. Yeah. And now they want to claim this is a continuation of an Obama economy, even though we just shattered those numbers. For example, we had three and a half times more jobs created with seven million jobs as opposed to two million jobs that were predicted in 2016. Let me just ask you, because we have time for one more. You had an annual report yesterday that called out 
housing, which has become a hot-button issue in this country. You said major cities, including San Francisco, Los Angeles, Washington, Denver, Baltimore, are not building enough to meet demand in those areas. It's driving home prices way above construction costs and, and hurting uh, it, uh, income inequality across the country. What would you like to see done about that? Well, it's a state and local issue, but it's actually concentrated in a very few set of cities that are very intrusive in terms of their government policies, restricting supply in those cities and therefore raising prices. That's particularly worrisome now when we have a sort of a housing boom with low interest rates coming in and we see a surge in demand because, uh, you know, we have this blue collar boom that's basically raised demand for housing because people are working more, they're earning mm -hmm. more. And, and, and it, could, it could be a, a dangerous situation, and, but it's really in a few lo locales or cities that have very, very restricted government policies on, on how much housing you can build. Got it. So highlighting that it's policy uh, contributions there that are creating this. Uh, Mr. Phillipson, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Thomas Phillipson of the CEA. Michael Bloomberg's big spending is becoming Facebook's big problem. How his social media tactics could change their transparency rules is next. We've got some drama in Iowa. An Iowa caucus chaos, inconsistencies in reporting results. It's 12 hours after we were expecting the first results to trickle in from last night's caucuses. Still zero percent. Meantime, as we mentioned, chaos at the Iowa caucuses. Chaos in Iowa. Still no results from yesterday's caucuses following reported delays. Troy Price told campaigns to expect the majority of the results by 4 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Eastern today. That was just a glimpse of what we heard the day after the Iowa caucuses. It took several days before the final results were announced. And as the spotlight turns to Nevada's caucuses this Saturday, tomorrow, the state is doing everything it can to try to avoid a similar fate. Joining me now from Las Vegas is Reed Albergati. He's technology reporter for The Washington Post. Reed, it's good to see you again. And I didn't realize there's actually a, a big danger that this goes uh, just the way Iowa did. What's going on with this technology? There is. Uh, yeah, in, in Nevada here... Uh, they had actually tried to use the same an app made by the same technology provider that created the app in Iowa that caused all of those problems. And on January 11th, they brought hundreds of volunteers to a local high school here to test out that app, and it didn't work. So some people realized then that there was a problem, and it really should have raised red flags. But it wasn't until after the Iowa debacle that Nevada Democratic Party officials here decided to scrap that plan mm. and come up with a whole new one with less than three weeks to go. So now, is, this, is the, the current plan now the iPad plan that you described, these 2,000 iPads with Cisco software? That's right. Yeah, there's Cisco software on there that's kind of a security thing where they can, they can control these iPads. There's about 2,000 iPads that the Nevada Democratic Party is distributing as we speak to volunteers who are going to run these caucuses. Now, when they open up these iPads, they're going to see one icon, and it's basically a web link. It's, it has two letters, CC for caucus calculator. And they're going to open that up, and it's going to go to a Google form, and it's going to connect with a cellular connection, and they're going to actually tally the results in that form. Mm. So there are going to be paper redundancies here, but it's, this calculator is really what's going to help them do some complicated math. Yeah, I mean, I, I read this, I think about it, and as much as we know technology is the future, if it's not ready for prime time, Reed, 
why not just use the phones? Why not just use literally paper or some of the older systems until something, you know, in such short notice? It, it just feels like they're taking a big risk here. So what happened in Nevada is caucuses are always messy. Um, they're big, raucous events. Uh, it's, it's volunteers trying to move physical people around in a room. So mistakes are always made. But what's happening this year in Nevada has never happened before. They're taking early voting totals, which you mentioned earlier, um, or those early votes, which are ranked choice. So it's between three to five candidates. And they're going to have to incorporate those early votes into live caucusing. That's going to create some complicated math. And what they were hoping is that they could use technology to, to make that math a lot easier. Um, and, that's, and that's what they have done with this Google form. But if it doesn't work, if something goes wrong, they're going to have to open up these envelopes with a paper printout and flowcharts that describe step by step how they are going to incorporate those early votes into the live caucuses. And that's wow. a, it's a very tedious process. Tedious. It's messy. We know this is, is often true of voting, but you know, technology introducing a new uh, wrinkle. Reed, what do you think will be the takeaway from what we've seen play out so far this year? I mean, how, how for future elections are we going to make sure that these results are, especially for the fall even, um, you know, that these results can be trusted? Well, as Maggie McAlpine, the security expert, told me, the technology to take voting and make it an online digital process is not even in its infancy yet. So I think what, what election officials have to realize is that technology can play a role in helping elections take place, but it is not going to replace the you know, paper ballot system, yeah. um, at least if we want to have secure and safe elections. Yeah. So they have to be very careful about the technology they use, and they need more continuity in the personnel developing it so it's not like they're starting from scratch every four years. Yep. Reed, uh, good luck tomorrow. Good reporting. We look forward to seeing the results uh, and, and hope we, that there aren't any more hiccups, uh, we should say. Reed Albergati with The Washington Post. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Kelly. <laughs> Michael Bloomberg's campaign spending could make a lasting impression on Facebook's rules. We'll tell you how right after this. Welcome back to The Exchange. Michael Bloomberg has spent $48.5 million on Facebook ads. And while some have been the traditional sort, some may not be. And that's raising transparency concerns for Facebook. Julia Borston has more for us. Julia. Well, those $48 million that were spent on ads, that was traditional advertising. But in addition to that, the Bloomberg campaign is hiring 500 deputy field organizers who are tasked with mobilizing supporters for the candidate, and that includes sharing posts on social media. Now, a source at Facebook tells me that the company is concerned about the lack of transparency around campaign employee posts, which don't identify that they work for the candidate. Now, as these are posts and not ads, they're not tagged or included in Facebook's interactive ad library. Now, this source tells me that Facebook is considering taking steps to make it clearer that people posting messages of support are paid employees. Facebook telling us, quote, we recommend campaign employees make the relationship clear on their accounts. We welcome clear guidance from regulators on in this area. Now, federal election campaign rules on Internet disclaimers haven't been updated since 2006. Back over to you. Yeah, they are begging for uh, regulators to help them sort out all of these issues. Julia, thanks very much, Julia Borston. That does it for The Exchange, everyone. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time same place. 
people today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.